0: Sergey This is an episode number 55 of the show. I have a very special guest today. His name is Charlie Gilkey. He's the founder of Productive Flourishing, a company that helps professional creative leaders and change makers take meaningful action on work that matters. He's internationally known as a thought leader on productivity, planning, strategy and leadership for creative people. And Charlie wrote the book, Start Finishing, how to go from idea to done. And the level of knowledge and the depth he goes to is truly, truly incredible. I've never come across anybody on this show that gets that far. And I'm truly excited to share it with you. Now, if you're really serious about not just starting the projects, but also finishing them and optimizing your focus, your productivity, to have the the highest output that you totally can deliver, you will buy that book. I really, really recommend that. He moves, Charlie moves people from idea to action through his keynotes, trainings, seminars, and workshops. So what are we talking about here? What are we talking at the interview? We are going through productivity, finding where you're good at, how do you focus better? Some of the hypothetical questions I like to ask, Tim Ferriss style, and of course, Charlie's favorite books. So without further ado, here's Charlie. I'm yeah. here with Charlie Gilkey, the founder of Productive Flourish and author of the book Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done. Charlie, excited to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having
0: me, Sergey. I'm really excited to see what we get into. So you speak, you do keynotes, you do podcasts, and you write. You do a lot of different things, and I'm sure we'll dive into that. Now, I want to start with this question in terms of coaching, and I know there's a ton of people who do coaching... If a coach hasn't done what they're advising on or what they're coaching on, how effective are they as a coach, just from your perspective, since you are in the same industry?
1: So I think we have to look at it in several ways. One is I think there is some additional nuance and expertise and experience that comes from having that lived experience of what you're doing before you coach somebody else. And I think that can also set coaches up to be more into a teacher or mentor role and not necessarily a coach role. It's more like a, hey, I've done this before, so here's how you do it, which um, you really have to be careful because if you're in a pure coaching thing, it may be where you want to help the de- the client figure out what, in their scenario what they need to do as opposed to you owning the map. So it kind of goes multiple ways. I don't think it's absolutely necessary for a coach to have the lived experience to be able to coach someone else on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I think it's helpful, but, and I also look at it this way. We don't expect basketball, like NBA basketball coaches, to be able to do what Kobe Bryant did or to be able to do what LeBron James is. Like, they don't have to be those people to be really great coaches. Um, Turns out, again, if they were NBA players, they have some lived experience. It makes them more relatable. They know what's going on. Um, So we can separate those two. Um, So I think for coaches who have the lived experience, you need to be careful that that lived experience doesn't, fall, doesn't push you into a teacher, mentor, or consultant role if you're really in a coaching relationship with your clients. And if you don't have that lived experience, focus on the powerful questions that help you orient your clients to what they're going through and what they need to go to next.
0: It's a fine line between coaching and teaching. Um, how do you, what do you do to make sure you don't cross that? Especially if you are a coach who did the same thing.
1: So there are times where I'll tell my clients that I'm a terrible coach, and what I mean by that is I go through periods where it's like this is actually one of those scenarios where you don't know what you don't know, or it seems like you don't know what you don't know, and you need to step out of that modality and say, okay, here's a framework, here's what I'm seeing, here's some lived experience there, so you really do collapse into here is external information to your lived internal world that will help you in guiding this decision right Mm -hmm. Um, but we have to have to remember that information does not lead to a decision or does not automatically predicate what people should do with that information so i think it's a change in posture that coaches need to be aware of is like oh I've switched from you know asking Sergey, so like looking at where, what you're going through, what are the options that you think are in front of you and which one is best? That's definitely a coaching question mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, oh, okay, so it's looking like you're going through these four different s- situations right now. Here are the options of each and here's what might be best for you and so on and so forth. That's definitely teacher right. consultant mode. And just understanding that shift from when you believe you hold the information versus... Um, when the client holds the information, you're trying to help pull that
0: out of them. Does that help? Absolutely. No, that's a great one. Great way to describe that. So you, uh, as I mentioned, you do a bunch of things: speaking, writing, podcasting, interviewing people, I'm sure. And you yeah. do you do a blogging a little bit less now than before. Now, and you also talked on the podcast uh, breaking the Twitch, I believe, uh, about mm-hmm. focusing on one thing versus doing. A variety of things and i thought about that myself a lot as well how have you when you started doing that when you transitioned from your previous work in army and then being in philosophy world have you started with one thing or have you started with a variety and that's how you approached it to build up on your experience that you have now
1: yeah so there's several ways of looking at this um a lot of the things so i'll say where i am now and then go back to the beginning Um, A lot of the things that I do now, I would actually put into a recurring a routine thing, like I don't have to go through so much of that generative creative work to do an interview for a podcast, or I'm not standing up a new podcast, I'm not standing up a new blog, I'm not standing up a lot of the things that I've done. So I'm able to juggle those sort of in the background, because they're practice skills that I'm able to maintain. Um, it's when I'm starting something new is where I'll say, okay, if this is a new strategic project, focusing down to um, a fewer number, one is great. Um, I know that most creative people um, need about three for them to not rebel against it. Um, Mm -hmm. But one to three projects is a nice um, amount because what that does is one, allows you to really get in there and immerse yourself in that project and the skills and the masteries and the context that you need to be successful. Two, it makes sure that you're actually doing enough of the work to get the feedback that you need to to be able to determine what's working, what's not working. Um, And three, with most of these new strategic projects and things like that, there is an inevitable dip or there's just a part of that project that's just not fun. And when you're carrying 17 different projects, that's about the time that we tend to bail And say, you know what, that's hard. I'm uncomfortable. It's no longer fun anymore. I'm going to take my toys and go over here. But when you have a fewer number of projects and you really understand displacement, which is the idea that if you do this one thing, you displace or you um, prevent yourself from being able to do a lot of other things in that same time. um, It can be helpful because you're like, well, if I don't finish this project, um, then all the time that I've already sunk into it is lost. Um, and, you know, the last, three months of my, the last three months of Google searching and conversation and all those sort of things are gone. Um, and if I do finish this up soundly, I can move on to the next thing much more powerfully. And so I think when we do 15, 17, 22 different projects all at the same time, we never get that real sense of closure and momentum from a project And if we focus to a, fewer, to a fewer number, get them done, learn what you need to move on to the next project. So that's where I am now, and that's my general counsel. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, like most creative people, I – actually, that's not true. I was going to say I did a bunch of things. Mm -hmm. Um, I started out as just a blogger. I was writing. That's what I was doing. and sort of stumbled into um, some business models related to that, stumbled into coaching, stumbled into some of these sort of things. And so at the time, it was really like one new thing at a time. Get good at it. Get some mastery. Like figure out if it's for you. Okay, it is – or here's how it fits into the broader thing, start a new thing, see what's going on. So I think that's what I wanna express is like, if you look at me now, I've been doing this for 13 or 14 years, depending upon how you count. So all Mm -hmm. those things, I've just had enough time to go through a three to four year learning cycle um, to get good at it and maintain it.
0: That's what I thought, thank you for confirming. That was my initial thinking and uh, just also, understanding your philosophy, watching your interviews, that like you're very methodical in terms of how you approach things and not trying to do 17 things at once. That's what I thought before. Now, I'm curious to hear with when you're starting a new project now, for example, how important it is to set a low bar, like setting a bar that is low so you're not like, oh, it's too hard, I'm out of here.
1: Yeah, so here's the weird thing about that. A lot of the research shows that setting too low of a bar actually creates disengagement, and we don't want to do the project. And there's also the research that shows that when it's too big of a bar, we also get demotivated and don't want to do a project. So for me, it's about being clear about the types of games that I'm playing and the, the different measures of success. And so I'll talk about this in my book, Start Finishing, um, where you can sort of look at three levels of success. So you have a small success you have a moderate success, and then you have an epic success. And if you're not a millennial or younger, you might want to say extreme. Um, and so those three levels help me vision like, okay, what's a small success for this project look like? And I always call it small success. Some people call it par, but finishing something and getting the wins and getting the learnings out mm-hmm. of it, that's always a success. That's not par. That's success. Right. right. Um, although I know that par means that whatever, we'll move on. Yeah. Um, the second piece is moderate. Like you do a little bit better. Like you got a little bit of momentum. You're sort of proud about it. You can build upon it. And then, you know, the Epic level is like our ver- your version of the Oprah moment or whatever that is, where it's like a really big deal. Like you stop everything, you call your mama, right. You do all the things to celebrate yes. that. Yes. Right. And so, um, Usually, when we go through that process and just say, "Okay, what does a small success, what does small success look like? What does moderate success look like? And what does epic success look like?" We can get a feel for what we're going to be able to do. And the question I will always ask my clients when doing this process is, "Okay, now that we have that charted out, before you choose which one you're going after, know that there's a commensurate level of effort that you need to get to get to that success. If you want epic success." you're gonna have to put in epic effort. You're not gonna be able to just coast and play things easy. You're gonna have to recruit some friends and allies. You're gonna be at it for a while. And if you're unwilling or unable to do that, please let go of epic success because there's nothing at that point uh, more than a tool of suffering, right? Because that's what you wanted to get but you didn't put in the work in. So it's just one of those things of looking at your projects and saying, okay, these are all really good goals, but realistically, how much effort am I going to put behind getting to those goals? And if it's moderate, you're going after, then you can appropriately gauge that level of, um, what's the word here? Um, the level of effort and challenge and, and do that. But you don't mm-hmm. want to only put small effort in and then get demotivated and frustrated because you're not getting epic effort, um, right. or put epic effort in and only get a small win, which sometimes happens, but it's you, it's unusual. Um, that that happens because from my perspective to put an epic effort requires recruiting allies requires doing a lot of thinking and planning and visualization and, and committing to a project at a level that most people don't they think they're putting an extreme effort but they're really calling it in safe and trying to do everything by themselves
0: right that makes a lot of sense what's your perspective on getting very very good at one thing or uh, in, in, in comparison to others, or being one of the best ones in, the, in writing, for example, versus being really good at a combination of different areas, writing, speaking, uh, maybe podcasting, maybe something else?
1: Um, there are some of us that thrive on being a generalist and being that jack of all trades, because the real value there is actually um, novelty and flexibility, hmm. right? So that's their values. Um, what I have found is that the thrill and the value behind novelty and variety wears off especially when people figure out that it's the masters and the people that took time to get really good at one thing are starting to lap them and get even more results and starting to be able to experiment and play more than the people who think they're playing in the beginning. So generally I want to say and this is this is piggybacking on like Dan Pink's work in mm-hmm. Drive like the three core human drives are autonomy mastery and purpose autonomy mastery and purpose Um, that mastery bit is so huge and there's a difference between someone who's been a um, my friend corey huff calls it a professional dilettante um, and just good at a whole bunch of things um, versus that person that actually sat down and did the work and they're confident in their writing people notice their writing, right? They get more opportunities Mm -hmm. to do the writing. They get more command and autonomy of their career versus someone who's stuck and frustrated because um, they can do a lot of things that many times are not being recognized um, by the marketplace, recognized by their network. And unfortunately, we live in a attention deprived world. And as much as we generalists, and I'm a polymath, I'm into a lot of things, as you mentioned. What I have to accept about that is when someone thinks of Charlie Gilkey, like if there's not one thing that they, one coherent thing that they could put that label on, I'm forgotten. Right. I don't come They don't know where to place you. They don't know how to recommend you for speaking. They don't know how to recommend you for podcasts. They think you're cool and interesting, but you don't own that one place. And so regardless of whether, so for me, you know, I focus on building high performance teams, personal productivity, um, you know doing work that matters so there are a few things people can label on and I get to do a lot of different things like podcasting teaching consulting facilitating coaching around those topics on the side but more, you gotta, more like a side thing more, more as a side thing those things are less important to me as like these are the things that I talk about a lot and so that's the out that I will give some generalist is the method by which you focus on your things you can vary that a lot but pick a few things, you know, no more than three things. One is better, but no more than three things. Like, this is what you do and how people can think about you because it's just going to pay dividends over and over again. And trust me, if you're playing the decades-long game or you're playing the long game, um, it's really powerful to be known for something. Um, there's a Zig Ziglar thing that I got from Seth Godin, which is, um, what's the quote? Better to be a meaningful specific than a wandering generality right? Right. Um, And it really is really frustrating. I've worked with some people that have been a generalist for too long and they don't have that positioning. They're frustrated because just they're at a point in their career where they're still struggling.
0: And for people who like variety, like myself, like you, you still want to focus on the the steak, like Gary would say, but you want to maybe add some of the side dishes that would keep you more fulfilled or keep you have you that uh, give you that variety that you need on a psychological level would that be the right way to think about it
1: yeah that'd be the right way to think about it and the other thing is like give yourself room to have hobbies right we try to like make everything like economically viable and we try to build a business model i was talking to a friend about this the other day where it's just something that he really loved and just i was like so maybe you do more of that and so then 20 seconds later it's like well i can't charge as much for it. There's this other thing and i'm like how did we get here? I'm talking about things you do just for you. Right. Right. And so like, you don't have to put a dollar sign on everything and make a, a side hustle around everything. I think that's how we can get more variety because you know, you could be deep into Neo Renaissance existentialist philosophy or whatever. You don't need to build a business around that. Just enjoy it, have it be your own um, and, and carve out that time. But that means that you're going to have to probably change some of your understandings about what it means to be productive, what it means to like do meaningful work. And it's not
0: just about all the work that you can charge for. hundred percent. You mentioned something interesting. I was curious if you could explain that again. What you said, when you do creative slash courageous work, you're going to crash. Could you, I think this is a very deep concept. I think it's extremely important. Could you talk a little bit about that? What happens and how could you overcome that?
1: Yeah, so um, deep, courageous work, there, there's always some crashes. There. And so when I say crash, I don't necessarily mean that it's a deep existential crash and that you're going to end up in a van down by the river and you're going to lose all your friends and you need to go eat worms. Because those are the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah. But the thing about courageous, creative work is that there are, at a certain point are no maps right there are all sorts of things to bump into and you don't know where you're going you fall in a hole um you'll run into these weird pockets where it doesn't really make sense i call them voids right you get stuck in a void you don't know how long it's going to take you to get out of i mean you just kind of sit with it and so there's always some um crashing i i use the word thrash more like you're always going to thrash with this work um simply because it does put you out of a mastery zone it does put you out of Whatever zone of, you know, um, excellence that you have that you're just natively good at. Um, And that's always going to be one of those things. It's kind of like riding a bicycle. If you learned how to ride a bicycle, there are times where you fail. They weren't necessarily like traumatic times unless it was one of those traumatic falls. But um, it's a part of the process of learning how to be a conscious person Mm -hmm. in this world, doing the best that they can in an evolving environment of people and circumstances and changing priorities, crashes that come with it.
0: Absolutely. I this is a cliche question, but I'd be curious to hear your answer Uh, advice for 30 year old self, Uh, you know, a lot of things now and uh, just curious, what what would you pick? Maybe it's, it's more this is, than one thing. Maybe it's more than one thing because I know sometimes it's yeah. so hard to pick one.
1: I appreciate that. It, pretty much any time people ask me one thing, I can't think of one. Um, I would say, and this is very specific to my own situation, but um, to remember to steer by starlight. And by that, I mean, yes, there are all these sort of analytic and strategic and sort of, you know, rational ways that we can make decisions in the world. But at a certain point, trust your gut, trust that pull into new places and you know trust that you'll be able to sort of do the wayfinding you need to along the way but that what's internal your values what lights you up what makes you come alive what's frustrating all of those sort of things are really important piece that i think in our thirties we can become so career focused we can become so externally um, accomplishment focused that we forget like oh yeah our happiness our joy our sense of curiosity our sense of play um, are also really important metrics to be thinking about because it's really easy to end up a decade later and realize, you know, you've been busting your butt, but you're no happier than you were when you were 30. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just always one of those things of, um, either steer by starlight or get out of your head. Um, and so sort of the other thing that I would say is, um, When you're thinking about decisions, and when you're in a space of making decisions, ask more questions like, what do I feel? Um, What do I see? Um, And things like that, so it's not what what do I think, what do I believe, which are always gonna pull you into sort of your head space and that sort of rational analytical place. And again, so they might seem to be saying the same thing, um, slightly different ways of thinking about it, but like in mm-hmm. any, any decision at this point in my life, I'm always like, okay, what do I think is the quote unquote right thing to do? Okay, so I'll get that out of my head and I'm like, what do I feel? What do I see? What fires me up about this? What lights me up? And just asking about that because at the end of the day, emotion drives action, especially for the long term. And if you're not deeply in touch with those um, longings and desires and things like that you're going to let go of that project before it's done and you're not going to do your best work.
0: Right. That's a great, that's a great answer. What uh, have you become better at saying no to um, over the years? I mean, there's a ton of things, maybe some of the ones that were hard that, that you had to come back to multiple times.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, interestingly, I quit something two days ago. Um, I've, <laughs> I've, I've gotten a lot better at quitting things. Um, but two days ago, I quit a really great writing opportunity Um, And it was hard to do. But when I looked at it, I was like, you know what, this is not work that's calling to me right now. Um, And it's not about a body of work that I'm really excited about. Like, I don't want to be getting up and worried about and thinking about doing this thing that I don't want to do. And so even though I committed to it, we got it all set up, I just backed up and said, hey, this is not a fit, let's end it earlier. Um, So I think kind of contrary or not it's, it's follow on to the last question you asked me. I've gotten better at saying, you know what this doesn't have a spark for me right If I'm being super honest with myself, this does not have a spark um, there are ways that things are just difficult because they're difficult. but I also notice when things start feeling hard that there's an additional emotional story, there's a different sort of spiritual story that I'm attaching to whatever it is that I'm doing. So I pay attention to what's hard and I'm like, hmm, what are the stories, what's the head trash that I'm applying to this? And if it's just one of those things that I see is going to be hard, 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 again, different, th- different than difficult, yeah. then I'm like, maybe I need to step out of that one, right? And go find other things that are difficult and really aligned um, that I'm willing to wake up and do and that I'm willing to, to go the hard yards for, but I'm not just making my life harder than
0: it needs to be. What kind of, um, how would you suggest people to come up with criteria to evaluate these types of decisions? Yeah, so... Um, because I'd assume they will, be, they will be pretty different for everyone. Um, they will be
1: pretty different, and, and it sounds cliche, but I think too many people are not clear about what their values and priorities are. And so they're deciding they're deciding what to do based upon what sounds interesting or what sounds like what they should do. So here's one thing that I'll say to people, um, and this is very much the coach in me coming out. Um, I'm really sensitive when I hear people say I should do that because think about it mm-hmm. we almost never use the word should when it's something we really want to do like when's the last yep. time Sergey, you've been like I should really go eat some ice cream right now <laughs> that's not what we say right I'm doing we it We say I want to right <laughs> yes. um, and so should is a really good word to be thinking about in your in your um, if you're one of the people that that's that you know have a mental run of, a mental run of thoughts and you're talking to yourself like when you hear that word should pause Always pause, and if you feel in your body because you're not a you're not a verbal processor, um, always stop when you feel whatever energy is attached to should. Because it's likely, likely that you either need to re-signify what that thing is, and by re-signify I mean make it significant and meaningful for your own values and priorities, mm-hmm. or address that it's opp, what I call other people's priorities. So you're really doing it because you want to make your mom happy you're really doing it because you want to look good in front of other people right you're really doing it for some of those things but when you sit with it they're not really what you care about um so shoulds are those things that just end up in the black hole of things that you need to do that just don't happen so pay attention to that up front um some questions that i will typically ask people around these sort of things is like Of the things you're thinking about, which of the option is more likely to make you get up early in the morning or stay up a little late or steal time from from other places in like a positive way? Like you want to -hmm. wake up early to do that thing. It's like the Saturday morning cartoons for those that grew up in the 80s or or 90s, right? It's like I remember wanting to wake up Saturday morning (laughs) and watching the cartoons, right? Um, So what's that for you? Um, Another way I'll say that is like find the ice cream. And again, going back to what I just said, we don't need... A bunch of accountability buddies. We don't need a massive productivity system. We don't need massive strategies to eat ice cream, right? Yeah. Um, a good one. We just—it's in front of us. We do. And so, find those places in your life of the projects and the things that are much more like ice cream. Again, doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, right? Because something can be ice cream and difficult at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Which is why, again, if we're a video gamer, some of us will just play it on hard mode because it's difficult, but that's what makes it interesting for us, right? Right. Um, so, yeah, between, you know, watching the shoulds and finding the ice cream, it really does help people figure out which of the things matter. Now, what I have to say on that for those things to work is you have to take your wants, needs, desires and dreams seriously. If you're unwilling to prioritize those for yourself, you're continually going to be in a position to where even though, you know, those are the things that fire you up or that, that make you dread it it doesn't count nearly as much as something else going on. So somebody else's needs. So in our society, for instance, women, we've socialized women to not be attuned to their needs or prioritize their needs. And so Mm -hmm. even when they know what they want to do, even when they know what their desires are, they won't give themselves permission to take that next step. So, um, yeah, you have to take your own self. um, It's really about self-love, but you have to take your own needs, desires, dreams, and wants
0: Um, as seriously as you would take somebody else's. How do you, what do you do to narrow them down? Uh, There could be a lot of people who have a number of hobbies. They really enjoy them. They might be at a point of having a strong interest, maybe not quite obsession, but like really interested. And they're like, oh, like I got to be doing all of that. What are maybe uh, frameworks or things that uh, you found could be helpful to, hey, I'm going to do this one thing or two. And I start with that.
1: Yeah, so again, finding the ice cream helps out a lot because it's easier to let go of a bunch of other things when you're doing something you actually enjoy, right? Um, and so what I find is um, 80%, 60 to 80% of, of all the, the list and project bloat is coming from things people think they should do, things projects they haven't finished and let go of, right? There's a bunch of that cruft and things like that that's really masking mm-hmm. over the 20% of the things that that really... Um, make people come alive. And again, one of them is giving yourself permission to quit midstream if you know it's not working for you. And and the way I talk about this, Sergey, is like you got to understand that finished projects are the bridge between your current reality and the life you want to be in, right? The current reality and the future. If you're working on a project that fundamentally does not get you to the future you want to be in, it displaces a project that could, and it's actually a worst of time. It's like investing in a home that you never want to live in. Why would you do that? Right? Stop the investment, cut your loss. And I know sunk costs are hard, right? Um, but understand it like time is really finite, right? It really is at the end of the day. And so that three months that you spend half working on this project that you half want to do displaces that three months in time that you could have spent fully working on a project that you fully want it to do. Right? So let go of the shit projects as much as possible or re-signify them, and I get this a lot because people are like, Charlie, what about taxes? What about email? What about all these types of things? I'm like, okay, I get what you're doing here, right? They're not things in themselves that you want to do, but they're tied to broader values and priorities that you do care about. Like, you know, being financially solvent and not, you know, being a law-abiding citizen is something most people want to do, right? We may not want to do taxes, but that's a part of the way that we do that. Um, and so we resignify it. And just because we don't want to do it doesn't mean that we're not you know, going to do it. So um, the other thing that I'll say on this one, Sergei, is I think um, what I've experienced is that because people haven't been making space for the things that really matter to them, anytime they're in a decision about doing something that does matter to them, there are all those gazillions of things that start yelling at them. like, And you know, sometimes I call it creative constipation in the sense of where they have all these ideas that just aren't going anywhere. And so the second they get a chance to move them, everything wants to come out at once, right? Um, not good physically, not good emotionally, not good creatively, right? <laughs> and so um, understanding that um, weaving in, whether you call them play projects or legacy projects or passion projects, whatever you want to put the name on them, actually makes it easier for you to say, you know what, in this three months of time, I'm going to focus on this. And then after I'm done with this, I can move on to the next thing. And then after I'm done with that, I can move on to the next thing. Um, But I think people get stuck because when they're saying, when they hear not now, they hear no, like, I'm never going to be able to do this. I don't do it now. Right. Um, (laughs) And so it's like, no, no, no. You actually have time. um, And guess what? Six months from now, nine months from now, all the things that you feel super urgent about like you have to do now, (laughs) a lot of them won't matter, right? So true. Um, Especially if you're you're doing projects that really make you come alive because those are going to set up opportunity chains, right? So you get other things that you enjoy that then you get other things and all those things you left behind, like you don't do them. But there is, trust me, there is a joy of missing out of all of those projects and just having that sense of mastery and flow and accomplishment um, and meaning that can come would you stick with things for a while.
0: What's your opinion on, you mentioned the three to three months uh, projects. I'm a huge fan of that. I think Tim Ferriss talks about that as well. Uh, what's your opinion on setting 10 year old goals? Uh, and Some people think that 10 year old goals are a little too far away. You don't really, you, you could like, you could be, you could come off short if you go that far. I'm just curious to, um, to hear what you think about that. Yeah,
1: there's a quote that's attributed to Bill Gates is that uh, most people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade, okay? And it's so true, it is so, so true. Um, to get a little bit specific here, I think visioning at a 10-year horizon is fantastic, mm-hmm. right? How you want your days to be, the general qualities of, of what's in your world, like how you want to show up in the world, those types of things really, really fantastic to do. To make a plan, super waste of time. Set two specific goals, stupid waste of time, right, in a lot of ways. Now, I think there are goals like, I want to have financial abundance. Sure. Right, Um, that maybe you could flesh out a little bit more than that, Hmm. those make sense. Um, you know, you want to make one 000, you want to make a million dollars by then you're either shooting way low or way high. And it's really not about the dollars. It's about the financial abundance piece. Right. right. Um, and so there are certain ways that you can do sort of vision sight, vision level goals that I think is useful. Um, but when you start talking about plans and commitments, like, let's be real. I, and probably you too, Sergey. like if you yeah. rolled back 10 years ago, you could imagine where you are today. Yes. Right. I couldn't imagine where I am today either. What makes us think that if that's true now, that ten years from now we're going to be like, oh, I was totally right about some of the things. So, again, be careful with it. Like, if you know right. you want a dream home by the water, that's a pretty good vision level sort of thing, right? Dream home by the water. Whether what, how many square foot it has, what 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 water, like that starts to get too granular. And the importance here, you know, I was thinking about this earlier is. Um, you seek what you find, or you find what you seek in a way, right? Um, Another way of saying that is you see what you're looking for. Now, we have to supply that, put that in the tension construct such that a lot of our suffering comes from not getting what we expect, right? So if you're looking for that super expensive home that you've laid out in a certain way by the water and you don't get that, one, you're going to be frustrated. And two, you probably missed a lot of other opportunities yeah. to have yes. that dream home by the water somewhere else, right? But you were so, so focused on reality looking like the way that you wanted it to look, damn it, <laughs> that you missed out on all the ways that it could look. 100%. Um, and so there's some tension there. And so um, vision level sort of fuzzy goals like that. Great. Great. Um, very specific goals, um, and or plans, not
0: so much a good use of time. How, how far ahead would you recommend to go specifically? Like if you are, if you are creating a specific plan, how far out would you be, um, suggesting your clients to go? Um, a
1: large part of this depends upon your, um, I sometimes call it your execution mastery. In the sense of, and, and Peter Drucker talks about this, is like, how big is your now? <laughs> um, and so for some people, the now is, is a month long, right? That's about okay. as far as they can see, okay. right? That's as far as they can go. For other people, because they've been doing it long enough, their now is the next 18 months, right? And I know that, that might seem to be a weird concept, but as you get more experienced in your career or business, as you get more accomplished, as you know yourself and your team more, you kind of know how long things take and you can kind of get a feel for how long it is. So for instance, in our, in our team right now, we Mm -hmm. use 18 months sort of timelines because we, we know that a year is too quick. Right. um, But we also know that we can't see three years. Right. And so it's like when we're starting to do our strategic planning, 18 months tends to be a really good horizon time for us. Mm -hmm. You know, four years from now, it might be three years. Who knows? Right. Um, And so go as far as you have um, clarity about what you want and what success looks like. And you can, you can see plan to that level of detail. But when you're outside of those sort of vision headlights, um, understand that let's say it's three months right now. Um, I keep coming back to three months by the way, because Mm -hmm. it turns out that it's a very good time for, um, really accumulating momentum on your projects. Most people struggle with that scope of project and tying quarters together, quarter size projects together, once you figure out, man, it's a key to mastery. So books, businesses, you know, job changes, like really significant projects, you got to sort of be able to run those quarters and roll them over and over. So it's a good point for people to to one develop some affinity for, but two also develop mastery for. Um, and so that's why I keep coming back to a quarter. So yeah. um, if you're that said, if you're working at A Fortune 100 company, and you're the chief strategy officer, and you're looking out five, six, seven years. Like That's the level of now that we're talking about. So I don't want to give a it depends answer on this one, but I think people trip themselves up because they expect themselves to have a longer planning horizon than they can actually have. Um, And then they either don't plan or they plan too granularly and get frustrated because their plans are are messed up. Or um, they under plan. Based upon how far they can see, and then wonder why their projects and work
0: and what they're doing in the world isn't coherent. So very contextual to where they are, like you said at the beginning. So true. So yeah. so so true. What is the? Um, I would be curious to hear your answer on that. What is the, the one point of difference that you have over the others, or you could, we could call it superpower?
1: Over others, or what's my superpower? Yes. Um, I prefer superpower better than than what's different. So, um, what Let's my friends and clients, what my friends and clients, everyone tell me is, is some version of X-ray vision, like being able to see things for how they are and see things at a deeper level, and then being able to um, convert that into useful information. And so, um, sometimes it just comes down to seeing.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, uh,
1: I know it's not super. It's not super cool, but like that's just what it, that's what I ha- have reflected to me over and over again
0: self-awareness piece definitely a big one Mm
1: -hmm. self-awareness but yeah um so as far as a superpower like seeing the world as it is and as it could be and being able to hold that tension between them um it's it's a gift that i keep
0: coming back to would you what would you say if uh somebody asked you a peter Thiel question like what is the one thing that you believe in that others will find insane
1: um, one thing I believe in that others would find it sane. Um, might be cliche, but like, there are enough resources to go around for us all to thrive. Like the zero-sum games that we play are largely human artifice, um, that keep us from being the best versions of ourselves individually and the best versions of ourselves as a collective.
0: I was reading the uh, Tools of Titans recently uh, by Tim Ferriss the second time. And somebody mentioned, somebody mentioned uh, a line that said the secret of life or something like that is all in cliches. And mm-hmm. I, th- I thought about it like, geez, that's so true. Like, oh, like it, it's so simple. And then I think people are seeking complexity.
1: Yeah, there's a line from the Tao Te Ching um, that goes, um, the Tao is broad and plain, but people prefer the side paths. And what, what it's saying is Tao is the state of the world or the state of nature or heavenly harmony. Is, it's pretty broad and, and straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but people prefer these side paths and they prefer to run around um, and they prefer to avoid that simplicity and create a complexity because, frankly, complexity is interesting to the brain, right? It's interesting. Right. like, It's interesting and it's a problem that we like we, I think, some of us, many of us, maybe all of us have a bit of a hero complex and that we always want that thing that's uniquely ours to figure out and accepting that a lot of this has already been figured out, um, is really humbling in a way. I mean, I'm fortunate in that I come from a a philosophy background. I'm a, you know, I have an MA in philosophy and I've studied this. So I know when I wake up in the morning, any idea that I've had, someone else has had, right? I'm not the only person that's come up with that idea. So I, I can let go of it being like this unique novel thing in the world and say, how is this useful? How can I apply this? How can I live with this idea? And so I think that's part of the reason why we we love that complexity. We love those side paths is because like, no, that's where I get to be individually important and significant to figure it out. As opposed to like, no, I could just walk
0: the road and be happy. Right. When you are having you, you when we you are having a bad day, maybe you lose focus temporarily. What are some of the things that you do to get back on track that work um, for you? And you could you could look at it from a mac, macro and like micro level because those are those could be small things like maybe minute interruptions to maybe something a little bit bigger.
1: Yeah. So rule number one is as quickly as I can, as for long as I can, get away from all devices, all computers, all phones, all sort of things like that. Um because those are part of the things that are probably gonna keep me in a bad mood or a swirl. One, two, um, if I get rid of all that stuff, it limits the amount of um, emotional destruction that I can leave in my wake, right? So I can't jump on the team and be snippy or passive aggressive and then have to clean some stuff up because I never got there in the first place. You know, I can't right. reach out, I can't make a fool of myself, I can't break things if I'm by myself. <laughs> right and so um, that's rule number one Um, Mm -hmm. two and again very simple drink water get something to eat stretch move my body go for a walk Um, and this is more like a physical reboot from are you thirsty are you hungry right is there something tight in your body that you need to let go of like do you need to get outside and move around usually that's enough um, for me to be like okay Um, You know, that's going on. And then the third thing is like get clear about what it is and own it. Um, So for me, we don't have to go off into Enneagram talk, but I know one of the things that I need to be always clear about is my frustration. Like whenever I'm feeling frustration, like something um, that's, that's a canary in the mind for me. And so to own what I'm frustrated about, figure it out also figure about how I'm creating a, reali- a reality that I don't I'm creating the very reality I don't want right so what am I doing here how am I attaching a story to it and going into that space and it's super helpful to do that when you get away from technology so you can see where that comes in yes um for other people it might be if you're feeling shame um that's that's for other types of people's like be re- like why are you feeling shame what's it attached to is it your shame is it somebody else's shame Um, If you're feeling anxiety, which is, you know, other people sort of feeling, feeling anxiety, where's that coming from? Is it yours? Is it somebody else's? Um, And really doing the work to address the emotion. And sometimes Mm -hmm. that work is understanding that that emotion doesn't need to be fixed. Right. And so um, and that could be really hard for you, for a lot of us, because sitting in some of those emotions of frustration, anxiety or um, shame You want to fix it. You want to do something. And sometimes it's just how you feel in the moment. moment. And, like, the reason the reboot process I mentioned is useful for me is, like, I usually don't have a big story when I'm thirsty. Like, it's not some existential crisis. It's, like, drink water, right? If I'm, you know, hungry, eat. Um, If I have these feelings come up, like, either sit with them and do what you need to let it pass or get busy working on it, but don't create a whole story about, like, the shame on top of the shame, the frustration on top of the frustration, the anxiety on top of the frustration, the anxiety, because so I think easy that's to fall where we getting... that. It's so easy to fall into that,
0: right? Unbelievable. Um, Flows my mind sometimes. Yeah. Like, oh, you're like, oh, it's all like everything's terrible and, uh, and the car didn't arrive on time. All of those things, right?
1: All of those things. And so that goes back to like, you see what you're looking for. And so some of those moments for me when I'm in those sort of moves is like, what do I want to see in the world? And so if I want to see joy, if I want to see happiness, if I want to see harmony, guess what? I can find those pretty quickly, right? If that's what I'm looking Mm -hmm. for. But sometimes when we're inside of these frustration, shame, or sort of anxiety spirals, what we're unconsciously like seeing in the world and looking for are things that confirm our anxiety, frustration, and shame. So that's what we keep finding over and over again. And so just being clear, like, okay... I'm okay with sitting in this emotion, like I don't necessarily need to fix it, and what do I want to see in the world? What reality do I want to start creating right now? and guess what? super quick' I'm, like our brains are really adept at solving that problem. unfortunately, we let our brains try to solve too
0: many of the wrong problems hmm. that's that's very interesting i I want to ask you about any book recommendations that you have for the listeners now. For sure, they all have to start, with start finishing uh, your book. I think it's uh, tremendous in terms of the practical advice. Here's what you should be doing. Go do that. I think it's, it's an incredible resource uh, that everybody should start with. You read a, a lot of books, I'm, hundred, I'm sure. Any ones that you uh, keep coming back to or you um, maybe gifted the most uh, beside the one that you wrote?
1: Yeah, so um, Eight Dates by the Gottmans. It's a book on um, creating relationships and marriages that last. And the reason that's so important is because like one of the single biggest predictor of our happiness and thriving is being in a solid and um, solid and, and healthy relationship with people in our lives. We forget about that. But Eight Dates is just a phenomenal book. So there's not a single person I've recommended it to that hasn't loved it and hasn't gotten an amount of value out of it. So that's, that's one. Um, the second one would be Triggers by Marshall by Marshall Goldsmith, and hmm. what I love about Triggers is some of the it, Marshall Goldsmith is one of one of the tops, if not the top executive coach in the world, um, and so he's got some really powerful questions and frameworks in there that really help you determine whether you're going to make a habit that sticks or make you know uh, make a change that sticks or if it's just going to be ephemera. Um, so that would be another mm-hmm. one I would put on the list. Um, let's see for third. Let me find one real quick.
0: Yeah, for sure. You've got a lot of them.
1: How to Live a Good Life by Jonathan Fields is a good, very good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And it's got some practical tools and tips for people about um, the buckets they need to fill in their life um, to really go towards their version of their own good life. So I think those three go a long way. So the relationship book, such a critical part of um, your happiness and thriving the um, Triggers book, such a critical part about your self mastery and understanding what you're going to get into and what you're not going to get into, and then how to live a good life, or how those things pro- pull into a broader construct of thriving and, and meaning making, excuse me, meaning making in this one short life that you have, that,
0: at least that we know of. I have not read those books. I'm super excited to put them on my list and go through them. That's awesome. I will link it in the show notes below so you guys can go check them out on Amazon. Um, Charlie, where's everybody can find you online?
1: So two easy places. One is ProductiveFlourishing.com. That's where all roads lead to, so you can find out about our products, about our books, about basically everything we do. So ProductiveFlourishing.com. People love our free planners, and so that's a good place for people to start with. So ProductiveFlourishing.com forward slash free planners, and that will get you there. Second place would be Twitter. That's the only real social media platform that I personally um, show up for. So if you want to give me a shout out on Twitter, that's great, it's at Charlie Gilkey.
0: And I'll link it also in the show notes so everybody can go and say hello. Charlie, is, is there anything we have missed or th- there's a final message that you'd like to, for the listeners to, to hear? Yeah. Um,
1: so the final message is like, I want everyone to sort of pause and think about some of those ideas and projects that you put into the closet of your soul, that you keep telling yourself that someday you're going to get to when the timing's right and you know you've got more money or when you've got a better job or when it's not covid or whatever. And really sit with that and find one of the ones that feel the most compelling and think about what you can do to start bringing that forward today. How can you work on that for 2 hours this next week? How can you push it forward for just 2 hours and everyone has 2 hours they can put on that? You will be happier. You will feel more sense of progress, you will feel more mastery. If you start finishing today as opposed to keep waiting as opposed to waiting for that someday when the time is right
0: that's a great one that's that's a great one that was a great conversation i learned so many things from it uh that was a pleasure thank you so much for for coming and sharing your wisdom Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a fun conversation. The conversation was so good that we did not wrap up there and we kept talking. So I'm going to include that audio as well because I think there's some interesting insights that Charlie shares. I always wonder, like, when I'm, and maybe this is just me second guess, oh, actually not just me, but like when I'm second guess and I'm a marketer, I do marketing, I'm like, yeah, I like it, but there are a lot of areas I don't like. So it does feel sometimes like work. And I'm like, well, maybe it's not quite the thing I should be doing. But I know it's like the, for, for the business, it's the right thing because it's a skill that, you know, I can promote my own thing. Um, so I guess it's more about keep experimenting, keep trying different things until you get the certain type of feeling. I think people
1: misunderstand that doing projects that you enjoy, that you have a sense of calling towards, you know, that are meaningful for you that is not incompatible with there being parts of that work that you don't like doing. Right. So anything that you do that really is meaningful is going to come with some of those. So if you're in a relationship and you prioritize that relationship, there are some parts of the relationship you'd rather not do, right. You'd rather not get into, right. If you're a parent, yeah. If you're a parent, there are parts of child rearing that you'd rather not do um, that are just part of it. And so I think it's true with our work too. There are pieces of it like, that we just don't like. So I'll give an example here. Um, yeah. I have to do this multiple times a month because on the one hand, I do not like email, right? On the other hand, just about every person that I'm emailing with, I actually like and want to be in conversation with. And so there's this dichotomy of like, there's this right. thing, this technology, this tool I don't like. However, when I think about it and I resignify it, it's actually a bridge that lets me talk to a bunch of amazing people that I would otherwise not get to. And so whenever I'm getting all growly about not wanting to do email and just ditch it all and move to a yurt in Arizona, I'm like, actually, no, these are really cool people that I'm talking to. And we're talking about things that interest me. So um, there's something else going on. It's not email, it's not emailing people. So I think it might be the same for you. Like maybe doing an analytics crawl is not the thing that you wake up in the morning to do, right? Yep. Um, yeah. But how do you find the wonder, curiosity, joy um, and meaning in that particular activity. because like, you know what? I would rather not be in this analytics click hole. However, mm-hmm. there's a puzzle here that I'm really interested in solving. And yes. this is just a yes. way that I need to go do it. And that can be just enough, ice, like remembering that there is ice cream there. Yeah, um, yes. And occasionally that might come with a brain freeze or occasionally it might come with something that you might not want to do. I think helps us stick with it. Now, if it's true that you can't find the ice cream, if you can't find the meaning, you can't find the joy. And it's just total dread work. That's a completely different scenario.
0: hundred percent, hundred percent. No, I did find it. It's the video um, and, but it's just such a small slice of the marketing, like whatever's with the video, this is my ice cream. This is what I should be doing. Uh, I have not really figured out in the format and like all of those things, uh, which are I new comes with time, but that's the piece I should be doing. And uh, I mean, it's a matter of like, well, go do it basically.
1: Well, it's either go do it or how do you, um, I call it smart sourcing, um, as opposed to outsourcing. How do you find people in your network, allies, supporters, who absolutely love to do the thing that you dread? Because there are those people. Um, and how do you build a collaborative process? In your case, it might be how do you make it economically viable? Um, and the reason I go smart sourcing is because if when we think about it that way, that thing you hate to do is, and the more you do that thing you hate to do or you dread doing, the more there's someone else who would love to do it that doesn't get to do it, right? Oh, interesting, yeah, right? Right, And whatever that thing is, and making spreadsheets and doing SEO research or whatever oh, yeah, that part yeah. is, yeah. there's someone who loves doing that. I um, mean, imagine just a vision of yourself of being able to work with a partner that when you give them that, they're like, yes,
0: right? <laughs> so they, they, they're that's, like yeah.
1: Thor, you know, in, yeah. in Ragnarok. So That's what I want people to be thinking about on the subject because it just shifts that energy.
0: Totally, totally. No, absolutely. This, is, uh, this, was, this was great. I'm curious to hear your opinion. I'm a big fan of David Goggins. Uh, I know he's an interesting guy, interesting philosophy. Um, what's your take on his approach and his mm-hmm. book Can't Hurt Me? Um, I'm not familiar with him or his work, so I have no opinion. Gotcha. But now I'm curious. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a, like a former Navy SEAL, uh, mm-hmm. the guy basically who talks about that you should triple down on your weaknesses. Uh, And I also, I think there's some misunderstanding in a way that I think there's weaknesses in the context of your strength. Like when you're, you're doing the thing that you're good at, there will be some areas that you don't like that maybe you're technically weak, like email, but you still have to do them to to complete the other thing, or maybe outsource or smart source. Like that's, I feel like a different than if you're terrible at basketball, you should triple down on that. Would that be the right way to think about that? Yeah, I mean, that would be the way I would go with it.
1: Um, I'm, I'm stealing a concept from my good friend, Michael Bungay-Stanier. He called, um, in his book, Do More Great Work, he talked about being accept- being acceptably mediocre, right? And I think yes. there are parts of our work where if we really get with it, we can be acceptably mediocre. And I had sort of that relationship with email a few years ago where I was like, you know what? Um Looking at what it would take for me to be excellent at email, I am unwilling to invest that much time, right? I'm willing to be acceptably mediocre there. Um, But when I show up for a call, when I show up for a meeting, when I show up for a coaching appointment, I'm 100% there. I've done the thought work. I've done the deep work. And I'm able to deliver at that level and be present. Um, And if that means that I have some clients and collaborators who are like, look, Charlie, I can't deal with getting an email from you four days after I send it to you when it's not urgent. Maybe we're just not great partners, right? Because I'm not going to invest in being that great at it. Um, And so to the similar point, yeah. um, And we see that to to go with the NBA analogy or the basketball analogy, like some people are like, I'm an okay dribbler, right? I'm not the best dribbler in the world, but my three-point shot, is off the shot, just off the chain, right? Or my ability to get rebounds, like that's my thing. And so I think in all of our work, we can pick those spaces where you can say, you know what, I'm not gonna be the greatest at that. I need to be acceptably mediocre. I can't let it be a huge liability. Um, But here are the aspects of my work that I'm going to be great at, right? Here are the aspects that I really want to be noticed for and double down on that, double or triple down to use his, triple down on that, and let the rest go. And when you get called out for it, like, hey man, like, you know, you weren't great at spelling. Well, as a writer, it's like, maybe that's not what I chose to be degraded. great at. I can accept a few typos here and there. Um, but what people come to me for is like mastering my metaphors or something like that. So I think that's the choice. And that's how we can be like truly excellent at something without always being overwhelmed that you gotta be excellent at all the parts. Because going to your point with video, um, with video marketing, man, there are like 18 different skills to actually do that well, right? Headlines, yeah. scripting, you know, video, audio, editing, topping, you know, all mm-hmm. the sort of things. You might decide, you know what, in this level of my work, or this is a good work, maybe this is a good thing for, for listeners to hear or you to hear, it's like, okay. What does it mean for me? What are the aspects of my work that I would need to be great at for me to be excellent? And you might list seven to nine things, right? Or you might list a whole bunch of things. Okay. Now, which one of those areas am I going to focus on mastery for this next 12 weeks? Right. How am I going to do that? And just focus on that, get great at that and then reevaluate and say, okay, I got one of seven down. What's the next one that I want to accomplish? And there might be some on there where you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to be acceptably mediocre at that. I'm okay with that. Right. Cause that's not where I want to be the best.
0: Right. G- getting granular.
1: Yeah. Um, I think too many people try to have a specific solution for a general problem. And too many people try to have a general solution for a specific problem. Right. And getting clear of like, this is a very specific problem or challenge or opportunity that I'm going to have a specific response to and getting clear about that makes life so much easier than just wondering like, how am I going to be a better podcaster? That's so hard. That's so hard to figure that out. Like what aspects is it your interview skills? Is it your deep research, you know, prior to that really helps you know, like there are different ways you can specify what that is. Pick an area of mastery, get better at it, do it again. And I know it doesn't sound, it's, it's not like rocket science, um, but it works. And it makes people happy and it develops mastery. People want it to be more complex than that, right? It's sexy when it's more complex. But like if I told someone, for instance, in podcasting, that like, you know, there are things you can do over the next three to six months to become a far better interviewer. Here are some books to read. Here's what the practice that you need to do. You know, the military guy in me sometimes just want to be like, stop talking about it and start doing it or don't, right? (laughs) Like fish or cut bait here. Um, not so much a good coachy sort of thing to do. But at the same time, I can ask the questions like, are you going to address it or not? Um, And if you're not, deal with that. And if you are, deal with
0: that. Thank you guys for listening. This was Charlie Gilkey and such an incredible in-depth conversation. I truly, truly enjoyed it. I hope you loved it too. And go check out the book, Start Finishing. Uh, we'll link it on the show in the show notes on Amazon. Uh, if you really want to dive in depth of his nine step process, how do you optimize your projects and really understand the small little things that can derail you to so you could maximize your output and deliver your best work. I highly, highly recommend it and uh, I think you will not regret it. Thanks guys for listening, I really appreciate it. I will see you in the next episode. Cheers.